Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to Voice America and welcome to this hour with me. This is Leanne Nguyen, your host for the hour. Um, we're now in the month of June, halfway through the year of 2018, and um, this is the eighth conversation, the eighth week that I've had with you. Um, June also is the month of gay pride. New York City uh, these past few weeks has been overflowing with people from all over the world, all over the country, celebrating queer love, seeking love, watching love, or just relishing being different in this springtime. Just this past weekend, um, there was Brooklyn Pride Festival just a few blocks away from my home, and my neighborhood streets were packed with people dancing, drinking, waving the rainbow flag, friends hugging one another. Um, and uh, soon there will be the big Pride Weekend uh, in Manhattan, the one with you know the big float, the big parade stuffed with uh, corporate sponsors, as well as joyous displays of different identities and sexualities and history of Stonewall. The big float uh, these days uh, will have Delta Airlines, Citibank, and Walmart. Now, when Walmart or Target wants your money, you know that you have arrived. <laughs> you know that you have power. Um, but also uh, from the flocking of politicians, you know, you can know that um, uh, gay people now have uh, quite some voting power. People who used to be evicted and jailed and even killed for having gay sex and who just until a couple of years ago had very few federal rights. So in many ways, gay Americans can say that we have arrived at a great level of legitimacy and normalcy and pride. We can take for granted now our right to love, to live a normal, dignified life. And the fact that we're now arguing over the right to order a wedding cake certainly attests to our rightfulness and concerns. But I have a different perspective on this month of June, a different participation vis-a-vis the pride celebration. And it's the perspective of an immigrant, of the many immigrants that I have worked with. For example, the perspective of a 60-something-year-old former Catholic priest and teacher from Poland who is terrified of being near the Pride celebration, terrified of being seen near the gay people, but also unable to overcome years and years of fear and shame that he had internalized during his life of being closeted and hunted in Poland before he finally was threatened with his life and had to flee and settle in Queens in New York. The perspective of a woman from Mali who had been regularly beaten, casually raped in her country. They call it corrective rape, you know. We're going to turn you into a real woman. Who had lost her child because of her sexual deviancy. She was so thrilled about her first Pride weekend in New York City. She said to me, 
with my grocery packing job, I have now saved enough money to buy a girl a beer. The perspective of a young girl from rural China who almost killed herself from being so hunted and shamed because of her suspected sexual feelings for her female classmate. And her mother finally gathered $40,000 to pay for her smuggling fee. And uh, she ended up in a restaurant, you know, working off her debt in New York City. And uh, was trying to get asylum. And after her asylum was granted in April, she said to me, I want to go and watch. Maybe one day I can hold hands with someone there too. Or the perspective of a Jamaican man, a former investment banker and community leader in his country. He, he's, he's been here for many years and won asylum years ago, but still disgusted, he said to me, by the display of sexuality. He said, that's not me. That's not my life. I don't belong here with these people. Still unbearable is the sorrow of a lifetime of suppressed desire and degradation. Just two weeks ago, I celebrated another win, a successful journalist from Belarus, born in the wrong body of a woman, lived in the closet his whole life, outwardly as a woman, that he pretended to be a workaholic who could not bother with buying dresses and jewelry. And he was uh, tolerated quietly by neighbors and co-workers until the recent decree from uh, Mr. Putin that those who practice homosexuality or advocate for it or talk about it or are suspected of it would be eradicated. So without official statement from Moscow, hate was given open space and free reign, even in Belarus, even outside of Russia. And so there collapsed a life and a productive career. And this journalist fortunately had enough resources to buy himself a ticket to New York with his college-age daughter, who was nearing suicidal depression from being harassed and hunted because she had a degenerate parent. So I helped Sasha prove that he is truly transgendered, that he had indeed really suffered persecution and that he had, quote-unquote, a credible fear about living in his native country. This man didn't care about which bathroom he could pee in. He just wanted to be able to walk down the street wearing pants, smiling at beautiful women on his way to a job that he's good at without being insulted and spat on and without going home to find his door smeared with feces and the word dirty lesbian scrawled all over his window. He didn't care about the right to the pronoun they or he or it or whatever. He just wanted to forget about memories, about gynecological exams where he was violated, about surgical procedures that were done without anesthesia while the nursing staff whispered to him, dirty lesbian. And for this immigrant, the right to order a wedding cake is so irrelevant, so far away and foreign as the idea of making a life with another human being is so 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 foreign to him, so far away, as far as the trip to the moon. Sasha will not go to Pride March. Too much freedom. I cannot take it in. Too much. Too much of a shock to the system. But he has many years ahead to get used to being human, to being treated like a human being in this country. Years ahead to shed decades of fear and hate. 
This immigrant won asylum. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security determined two weeks ago that he deserves protection and can make a life for himself and his child in this country. So pride for me is when I sit in the back of the courtroom in the federal building, hearing a federally appointed judge say to my client, I have heard your case. I find your case compelling, your testimony credible, and I find you deserving of our protection. On behalf of the U.S. government, I offer you full asylum in the United States of America. You can stay You can live, you can love and work freely. You can be a full human being because the law of our land has determined so. By the way, this particular law that gay people who flee persecution from other country can ask for and will get asylum in the U.S. only happened recently in the mid-1990s, only 20 years ago, when Janet Reno, who was then Attorney General, issued an order, an executive order, stating that homophobia is a source of lethal violence and that LGBT people belong to a social group that deserve protection because of the violence that this group of people can be subjected to. So implicitly, the then Attorney General was acknowledging that this group of people deserve to have a chance to a safe and dignified life in this country, and that we, in the United States of America, will recognize and help enforce that notion about human life with and for our fellow human beings, our brothers and sisters from all over the world. That, to me, is pride. Earlier this week, the current Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a decision that undid my world quite a bit. He said, in a stroke of a pen, that women who flee violence in their native country, who used to be able to ask for protection in the U.S., will no longer qualify to apply for asylum. They will no longer get asylum in this country. Last week on the show, I shared with you my credo, the belief that I live by, that every life is worth saving, every mind is worth knowing and cherishing, that every human being is worth loving. That credo is uh, tested quite a bit this week, so dearly tested, because I, um, I hate this week. Because I have to see this week that I am a citizen of a nation that does not value human life, that degrades the life of the mind, of the soul, that encourages hate and cruelty. This statement from Jeff Sessions to the women who flee rape, domestic violence, gang threats, that he said that the quote-unquote difficult circumstances of their lives cannot be the concern of this government. This statement comes on top of the policy of separating children from their parents at the border as a way to deter uh, immigrants from coming here and, and trying to enter this country. The American Psychological Association, the American Pediatrics Association, and so on, have sent letters, official statements to the Justice Department uh, telling them about the harmful effects on children of being separated from from their parents and and pleading with with the uh, with our government to consider uh, the harmful effects. 
of the policy. This gesture to me is so wrong-headed, so 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 fucking white liberal minded because it is premised on the educated white liberal mindset that lack of education, that ignorance is the reason behind such cruelty. It pushes forth the naive and even arrogant hope that education, that inculcating knowledge is the rem- remedy to this kind of hate. These people who rule the country right now are not ignorant because they are parents. They were children once. They are educated. They know what it means to be human, what it takes to have a full, dignified, safe life. They are not ignorant about the fact that people are willing to do whatever it takes because they would too in order to save their children, in order to to stay alive and to provide for themselves and their children including leaving everything they hold dear, including taking their children into uncertainty and cruelty so that they have a sliver of a chance for a safe life. Years ago, when my mother took me on a boat to escape Vietnam, she knew about the chances of us being raped by Thai pirates who were roaming the China Sea, about the chances of us drowning and being dehydrated and dying of starvation in the open sea if we would run out of patrol. But she had to, because otherwise her child would not live. I am now working on a case of a young woman fleeing Morocco with her two-year-old son. She was, on a daily basis, beaten and raped by her husband, who I know, we know, is a closeted gay man. So much self-hate that he poured out onto his spouse every night. Uh, before, after he was uh, done roaming the streets with other men. So she finally escaped and came here and we were preparing for her asylum. And up until this week, it was a slam dunk case because the law of this country said you can have our protection and your child can grow up in this country. And I don't know what's going to happen to her now. She's been subsisting in a shelter on $192 of food stamp and $154 of cash of help from the New Jersey State Department. And now she will not have asylum. And I don't know what she's going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's not ignorance. It's hatefulness. The question that we ask ourselves is not Why don't they know? How can they be so ignorant? The question of the day is how are they able to ignore what they know about human life? What makes them able to suspend what they know about what it means to be human, what it takes to live? What separates us from one another is not what we know. Is not how much we know. What separates us from one another, from animals and from the gods, is what we do with what we know in this life. So June is the month of LGBT pride. Given what's going on, I will not celebrate it. I will want to celebrate, I will wait to celebrate the month of LGBTQH celebration. The H, the human, is what I want to celebrate. And that is the reason why today I asked my dear, dear friend and former colleague, Carol Prendergast, to come and join us in this conversation about what it means to be human. Carol knows quite a bit about that question, I would gather, because she has spent her entire adult life 
working on, advocating for, researching policies, the means of support towards protecting human rights. So I ask you to welcome my friend, Carol. And Carol, welcome. Welcome to Voice America. Thank you, Ayan. I'm very moved by your statements. I'm, I'm still taking them in. I can feel the passion that I've always felt in your voice about these issues. And you were devastated also by the Jeff Sessions news. It is incomprehensible. Right. And I think that I I think I think one of the points you make that that is so simple is when you talk about the people in power, regardless of political beliefs, they most are parents, everyone was a child, something like that separation of parent and child goes so to the root of everyone's human experience. And you also pose the question that, that I often do to when I'm thinking about these things, which is, well, wouldn't you do the same thing in that same position? Um, you know, would you take that chance? Mm-hmm. Um, and we like to think that we would. You know, we all like to think during the Holocaust we would be hiding Jews. We like to think we'd be smuggling people out of the country. We like to think if we were in a, a terrible situation, we would flee no matter what to save our families and our children. Mm-hmm. And um, in some cases, like your own, you know that... that um, that your parents did that and mm-hmm. uh, that you're here because of that. Right. For the rest of us, I think most of us like to think we'd make the same choice. And I don't understand how even someone's imagination cannot take in, cannot take that in and cannot see that that is the right choice for people. It is not intended to be aggressive, evil, ill-intentioned. It right. just is beyond my comprehension. Right. But the, the, so the thing compassion. though, yeah, but the thing though is that kind of choice and decision of people in power, even like people in the street in the neighborhood of, you know, any mm-hmm. country, look at Syria, Lebanon, or Palestine, that kind of decision is unfortunately very common. And I have to reckon with that is, is human. <laughs> the decision mm-hmm. to not love, to not act on behalf of your fellow humans is part of being human, unfortunately. And that's, that, that's what I want. I'm, I'm going to puzzle about that until the day I die. <laughs> so, well, um, I would add something. I would just add something else to that. It's one of my favorite writers and, and teachers, really, Elie Wiesel, once said that indifference to him is the epitome of evil. So mm-hmm. he went even further to say you don't even have to be acting against people suffering, just being indifferent to it, just mm-hmm. an everyday person turning away, which is, you know, often the inclination, you see something painful, you want to turn away from it, that that indifference is evil. Mm-hmm. So I think we well, should really be holding ourselves to that standard. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, let, let's just take a break now and let's let's mm-hmm. just talk about that, about what, why the indifference and or, or conversely, what does it take to not look away? You know, mm-hmm. what does it take to look 
and to try mm-hmm. and to act. And that would link us up to the whole human rights movement that I would like for us to, to, to talk about a little bit when we come back. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back, okay. folks. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. All right. We are finding each other again and with Carol, Carol Prendergast. Um, so we were this this week with this uh, decision by the Attorney General really shows that you know laws are are made by people, right? Laws, human mm-hmm. rights laws, any kind of laws. We talked about it with uh, with Bonnie Rabin last week about matrimonial law. The law reflects us, what we yeah. hold dear, what we aspire for, or what or, or, you know. To me now, the question of what makes us human, who is human is a political question now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Carol, you've been so steeped in the human rights movement, you know, and it's, 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 it's something that we take for granted that seem like it's been around forever. It's kind of like, you know, religion or something. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it wasn't always so. It, it existed, uh, it only started very recently, actually, in the history of mankind. And it's man-made. <laughs> Right, a whole yes, bunch of people and largely woman-made. Let me add, uh, largely yeah. woman-made, driven by Eleanor Roosevelt in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, it, it, yeah, you know, there are many documents and declarations throughout history that celebrated life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Whether it was our Declaration of Independence or. Uh, the French Revolution or the Age of Enlightenment, 
these have been goals that people have had or feelings that people have had uh, for a very long time. But I would say the human rights movement can really be dated from when the UN was being formed uh, in the early years right after the end of World War II, and the world was facing the, the devastation that that war wrought, and they were facing uh, the consequences of the Holocaust. Meaning, and, meaning uh, the, the, the intentional violation yeah. and annihilation of human beings, of yeah. millions and of human beings. And that this could okay. be done right. in, in a country where it was a quote-unquote Western European civilized country. A lawful um, country. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, I yeah. think it, it, it compelled the international community to want to have a forum like the UN. And one mm-hmm. of the first things that was done was that there was a drafting of a universal declaration of human rights. Now, this has absolutely no legal binding effect. It's a declaration. Um, but it does serve as... Um, a, a basis for for all of the human rights law that followed since through international treaties and conventions. And I don't want to get into the weeds of international law, but this informed that. Um, and the interesting thing was, I, I was thinking about this, um, you know, after we began talking about doing a program and the fact of the matter is that that declaration was so broad and aspirational that it included it, it included some things that we do take for granted, you know, in terms such of... Such as? Excuse me? Such as? What, what other things? Oh, such as, we uh, the first one is uh, that all men should be free of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should be free of torture. Uh, free to practice religion, um, free from uh, discrimination due to our ethnicity, um, free to, to, uh, to, for asylum, freedom to mm-hmm. move if we're feeling persecuted. Uh, mm-hmm. But even more interestingly uh, to me, it, um, it also included social and political, uh, social and economic rights that we do not, uh, in most countries, acknowledge even today, uh, which is the right to health, the right to cultural hmm. rights, the right to health, education. Um, it, it, things that are uh, the right to health care, education, free speech, some of these we include, but in this country, we don't talk about health care as a basic human right, or education as a basic human right, or safety as a basic human right, Interesting, um, right. or shelter as a basic human right. So, so that was like the original declaration uh, is so mm-hmm. obsolete now. You think like things have evolved since then in terms no, of what the international was, uh, community deems to be human rights? No, I don't think um, that it's devolved. I think that uh, the the human rights and almost anything we do reflects the environment we're in. And that period was reflecting a response to the horror 
of what we saw in World War II. So there was a need to say, we don't want this to happen again. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't want people who are disabled, who are homosexual, who are trade unionists, the right to assembly was included, the right to association, the freedom of speech. We do not want to have this ever happen again. And Mm -hmm. so it was an aspirational moment. And this document is the underpinning of what the goals that the, of the UN at that time. Now, interestingly enough, um, 30 countries signed on to it, uh, meaning that they endorsed it. It didn't mean it made it law. Uh, and several countries didn't. And what affected them at that time was they were mostly the Soviet Union who did not want to, um, to have freedom of movement from mm-hmm. countries under its domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were also Saudi Arabia that raised the point of saying this is in con- some of these things are in conflict with Islam. Mm-hmm. And that set the stage for what really happens with human rights, which is it is constantly a struggle between the idea of universal human rights, what all mm-hmm. the world can agree is a human right, Right. Uh, which was affirmed in 1993 at the UN Conference on Human Rights. At that conference, the statement was issued, these are universal, these are indivisible, these are human rights. And at the same time, they issued a decree saying, but no way will this threaten the sovereignty uh, of any nation. So, mm-hmm. so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we don't have an international government. So it's kind of, I'd like to look on the bright side and say, well, there are these international aspirations, which I actually think express the aspirations of most individual people, not most individual governments. And that mm-hmm. the, the caveat that sovereignty cannot be overwhelmed by international uh, by international mm-hmm. declarations or conventions or so on, uh, that sovereignty drives most governments. And, the, right. and one of the ways you see it is, for example, in, um, in asylum law. You know, each country has, yeah. its own, has its own standards. And we see, like we've seen this week, this can be changed, you know, with the flick of a pen, for the better or the worse. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes... Yeah. Cases are, are brought in court. Sometimes it's an executive order. Um, so I, it just struck me that so many years ago, that what, 70 years ago, we were espousing these wonderful rights. And now, you know, there's a drawing back on those rights, certainly in this country. And in many countries, um, including our own, I think we don't see the social rights, such as educational rights, health right, housing right, we don't even acknowledge them really. So I like to, uh, I, I started off as a lawyer, but one of the reasons I moved into broader advocacy work is because I'd rather be working on the aspirations uh, as of, opposed to enforcement of, these, of these human rights. Well, then say, say, can you say more concretely about what you have been trying to do? Well, for, for quite a while, I guess when I first became a lawyer, I, I was very concerned about the individual rights of uh, criminal defendants 
right. who are on mm-hmm. death row, uh, people accused of crimes, uh, conditions in incarceration. And my main concern was that I did not want the government to impinge on the human rights or constitutional rights of those people. So that was initially what drove me in that work. Um, and I moved from that. There was, there was a, a bit of a hiatus, which we could talk about later, uh, where I had very serious health problems and had to stop working. And when I came back into the workplace, I guess having thought about it, I thought, you know, I really love this work, but I really want to work with a broader brush. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so I began doing more. I was working with Amnesty International and uh, Defense of Children International, which at that time was trying to pass, was trying to get the U.S. Congress to uh, endorse the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So I was doing a lot of advocacy, a lot of lobbying around those issues of trying to promote policy and getting the United States government to... Uh, to adhere to this kind of policy that would support, okay. you know, international okay. treaties and so on. So your your effort so your, your effort was towards trying to get uh, uh, the authorities, the government, to acknowledge mm-hmm. the importance of of certain rights and to right. then ratify certain policy that would mm-hmm. protect or enforce those rights. Yeah. Right. And, and have and that, you moved away, a little bit away from that now? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I still do that. I'm still involved in that. But um, I think when the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child was not um, endorsed by the United States, we were one of very few countries who did not <laughs> become a signatory to that convention, um, and again, Amazing, I'm not saying right? every country. Yeah. <laughs> what, I'm not saying every country uh, respects them, but they signed on to them. And in this country, one of the major issues was, well, you know, child labor isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, we want to protect the rights of parents to do what they want with their child. It, it was framed in a way that said. Children aren't really people. They're actually um, they're actually the property of their parents, and so we yes. certainly don't want to, you know, intervene in that. Interfere. That was very right, discouraging. Right. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was very discouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I did, I did then begin through looking at this. I found, you know, a lot of this reflects your own personal growth too. I found that I wanted more to once again have more of an impact on people. You know, when you're representing people in a legal process, you feel that impact, you know, whether you're winning a case or you're losing a case. When you're doing policy, it's a little broader, and so you may feel like you're having more impact. When And some things I worked on were successful, but, um, but you don't feel that personal connection, so I wanted to move back to that personal connection. And I became involved in the... Um, uh, the torture treatment movement, which was, I had, of course, been lobbying against torture for many, many years, but I became more interested in, well, after somebody has been tortured and they have asylum, how can we work 
uh, either asylum in this country or in another country, how can we best work to help that person recover their lives? Right. And so that was like the next phase of my work. And that, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist. That work was primarily done through uh, the management of torture treatment programs, raising money for those programs, raising awareness about, um, about the struggles of torture mm-hmm. survivors. Basically, um, doing whatever you could to make sure that the resources, the, the, the yes. systemic support would exist for yes, people exactly. who come that, And that was from. very meaningful. That was very meaningful. And again, you always feel like you would like, like to have affected more people. But, um, you know, as you know, through your asylum work, just obtaining asylum is an enormous thing. And then if you are working through programs that are able to give more support through psychological support, medical support, legal support, social support, uh, it really helps people start their lives again. And that work is very inspiring to me. Well, all this work is inspiring to me because for all the horror that people go through, you, all, you see that, but you also see the incredible spirit that remains alive in people. And I often think, how does this person go on? You know, how do they mm-hmm. have the strength after all they've gone through to build their lives? And I, I like have to you be come a part to any answer to that question? To that question, about- <laughs> um, well, I have a few speculations about it. I think that, um, uh, and, and this ties in a little bit with work that I'm doing now, which shifted again, I, I always feel like I'm working on the same issues. I'm just wor- approaching them from a different angle. Um, it seems to me that what seems, I, I, I do think that despite the fact that many people look at other people and see the other, I definitely feel, and I have always felt this, I don't know why, but just from a child, that made no sense to me. I always felt, why would somebody else have a different response to pain or to loss or, you know, to hardship than I would, to suffering than I would? And so when I look at another person, I would say the main thing that seems to me that gives people strength is if they know that they're being seen, and this is why I think the asylum process is so important, they have um, uh, a lawyer supporting them, hopefully a psychologist supporting them, and then a court saying, you know, you can stay. I think that is so affirming that it gives, it re-sparks that human spirit in people and re-strengthens them. Because after that, there's a lot of hard work to do, as you know. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, it, yeah. it goes on for a lifetime. But I think that, and if it's not somebody seeking asylum, say it's somebody who has you know, suffered other kinds of abuses, but is not seeking asylum or is still living in their home country or is still living under threat, I think... And, and this is just me. I, this is based on absolutely no data, absolutely no, no mm-hmm. evidence that can be quantitative. But my feeling is if people have hope, 
that it can be different. And it can be a shimmer of hope, but some sense of hope. I think hopelessness um, is the worst thing for any of us to deal with. Right. The sense that there and, is no other possibility, that there exists no other worlds, no other lives. Right. right? We have to and break we, for now, unfortunately. And when we come oh, back, okay. we'll talk mm-hmm. about that, the possibilities. Okay. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back, everyone, to the last segment of the hour. Carol, so I want to pick up where we left off before the break. Uh, I want to know more from your observation over the years of how, what do people rely on? What is the thing that allows people to go back to their lives, to go back to being mm-hmm. human? Well, You said something about saying, hope I, before we left. Yes, uh, I was saying that I think that for most people there needs to be uh, a glimmer of hope that things can change. And I don't think you need to be, I think one of, the, one of the issues that we all deal with is, well, what can I do? Well, you know, you don't need to be, it's wonderful that they're there, but you don't need to be an asylum lawyer or judge or psychologist or social worker to give some hope to another person. And I think that we need How? to be aware. How? Well, I think we need to be aware in our day-to-day lives of how we just treat people. So, for example, you may see someone, well, we certainly do living in New York, you may see someone who doesn't speak English, for example, and you can have two responses. People, you can either be impatient with that or you can try to help 
the person help the person communicate. You often see that someone's looking for directions or they're in a medical building and they're looking at a, a card of where to go to. I think just by reaching out to that person and helping them to get to where they need to go or help communicate with them, it's treating them like a, a person of worth. You know, it's treating them like your equal. Um, somebody who is just, yeah, so, someone who's disabled. I have seen terrible instances of someone who's disabled trying to walk down the street and people are rushing past, nearly knocking them over. Um, we see homeless people. Mm-hmm. Um, someone was telling me just yesterday that in the subway car he was in, there was a homeless person lying on the floor and everybody was just looking disgusted instead mm-hmm. of wondering, is this person dead? Do they need yeah. food? Should we be calling for help? And so I think that, you know, we can talk about human rights in a lofty way, in a legal way, but I think it's really just primarily about respecting the dignity of people. And every one of us can do that. Every right. single day there's an opportunity, at least one. And I want to add, too, because this is the thing, my mission uh, on, on this show, that we are not talking about doing that for, you know, disenfranchised, disempowered people, disabled people, torture survivors, and so on. We're talking mm-hmm. about doing that for everyone, for yes. each other, for everyone yes. that we see on the subway, in the street, in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Just, we all want to be seen. We need to be seen in order to... Go on with the business of living. You know, one thing that I've noticed is um, sometimes when I call into like a call-in center, you're ordering something or you need something returned or you're having some problem Mm -hmm. with your, you know, Time Warner bill or all the many things that annoy us. And you get someone on the phone and, you know, I always feel kind of bad because I know they're always getting complaints from people like that's their job, but it can't be pleasant. And I find by just making some small talk a little bit with the person, even mm-hmm. if it's just to say, oh, what's the weather like by you? Or, right. you know, is this a busy time? The smallest thing, and I end up engaged in a conversation with people, which seems mm-hmm. to be my fate in life anyway. I'm always in conversation with people. But I find you just feel the energy shift. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. a, cash, a checkout person at the store that you remember their name, that you say hello. It just enriches everybody's life. I I think one of the things we want is to be connected to one another. Right. Um, What breaks my heart, though, when I do that is the initial look of surprise in people's eyes, on people's face, because that tells me that we are so used to being dehumanized. (laughs) You know, that what is normal is just seems so, so weird. Like, why are you saying hello to me? (laughs) Right. You must be from out of town. You can't be a New Yorker. I mean, I I say that as a New Yorker. Um, Well, I don't think it's just New York, Carol. I I think it's all over the world. You you know, like, why, 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 why are you not talking to your iPhone, you know, uh, why are you talking right. to me? What are you trying to do now, uh, th- this year? What, what kind of, of effort are you pursuing? Well, as you can tell from my brief little summary of my professional life, I'm always moving to something different. And uh, at the moment, what I'm doing, I, I had the opportunity uh, Uh, to be a senior fellow at the London School of Economics a number of years ago, and it gave me two years 
to both study and research and reflect on my life, which is something that's a luxury. And from that time forward, I decided that I did not really want to work within an organization, that I wanted to be sort of self-structured and be in a place where I could partner with groups. Sometimes they're international groups who I'll be a consultant to, but often through those international groups, I will find small uh, grassroots groups, and I try to connect with them and support their work. So, for example, um, about a year or so ago, the Aspen Institute was doing a, um, uh, a mission to Lebanon, to, to mostly Beirut, but to Lebanon, and uh, they had a collection of people, I think there were about 10 of us, and they, we were there to see what refugees and, and other marginalized uh, Lebanese people and refugees were Iraqis, were Syrians, were Palestinians, all in a different phase of displacement, uh, to see what could be done to partner with them, to help them actualize their ideas. So, for example, there was a tech company there, and I was totally amazed since, you know, I, I've you know, I'm not a social media person. I was amazed. All these young people are very savvy in social media. And a lot of their ideas, whether they're living in refugee camps or they're living within cities or within communities, all these young people have in common is they love computers, they love social media, and they're trying to find ways to make a living by tapping into the global community. Now, Mm -hmm. I was really amazed and admiring of that, but since I would be nothing but a hindrance in that situation, I found um, women who were, who were making the most beautiful, embroidered, and hand-woven clothing, clothing and bags and so on. And, they and these, by the way, t- were, were displaced refugees who had been yes. languishing there for years. Language, right. the people I was particularly meeting were in Shatila. So this is a refugee camp that's been there since 1948. Exactly. I was talking to one woman who said that her father had left Palestine after the, um, after the uh, establishment of Israel. She had grown up in the refugee camp, and her son had been born in this refugee camp. Right. And... She said to me, you know, when I was... Now, the Shatila is, is like south of, 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 um, of Beirut. I mean, you're not far. You're in Beirut, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the distance is huge. And she said, you know, when I was a girl, it, it would never occur to me to go to Beirut. You know, to the, like I felt this was my world. And so she came from a different... I would say she was probably my age, maybe a little bit younger. I'm 64. She might have been in her 50s. And... Um, what she and many other women were doing were working together on keeping this beautiful traditional embroidery of the Palestinian people. And their challenge was, well, how do we sell this? You know, maybe a few stores in, in Beirut would buy it, but, you know, they didn't have markets. So this was a place where... Um, where I could be helpful because although I'm not a business person either, 
in the course of my life, I've met many people. And so I'm always a liaison. So I'm working with them to help them find markets in the U.S. and in Mm -hmm. Europe, connecting with people who are Internet savvy. Uh, I found another volunteer to work with them on marketing. I'm also working with a group of women in Iran. And although I can't import things to the U.S. from Iran, when I'm in Europe, uh, we're trying to sell their things. Now, the women in Iran are not refugees, but they're very, one group is disabled. One is just not able to work outside uh, the workplace. So they form these little, uh, outside the home, rather. So the, the workplace is their home. And I have a friend in Iran who uh, had to flee Iran at one point, and now she's back there, and she is reaching out to these women. And again, we're trying to sell these goods to bring the money back to them. And one of the things I wanted to say in both of these instances, but particularly in Iran, um, people, the, the women there are fascinated that people from the U.S., or Western Europe, would want to buy something from Iran. It so changes their whole picture of who we are and connects them to who we are. And that Westerners or Americans would appreciate Palestinian craftsmanship gives them, I won't say as much pleasure as getting paid for their work because they're looking to make a living, but that connects them to the rest of the world. Right. Carol, um, yeah, I you would not. There are many it. other things, but that would take but, more time. Well, no, we we are at the end of the hour, and there, there are many oh. more questions that I, I want to ask you and talk about. And the main question is, what does this do for you or to you? What does this work mean to you? But it's 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 it's. <laughs> the time it's gone. We t- we can't take uh, back the last. <laughs> we talk too much. That's you know, problem. and and I think um and that question is very important to me of why are you mm-hmm. doing this work? Why is any of us doing the work that we do? Actually, we're not just talking mm-hmm. about human rights. We're talking about right. you know weaving or embroidery or or, right. or going to some startup company um mm-hmm. or doing marketing. Um, we're going to have to plot to have another segment on this because I, I, I want to. to get to that question and I want you to talk more about all these initiatives. We're going to find a way. All right. But okay. for now, everyone, we, yes, we have to take leave and I will find you again next week. What's on schedule um, is another friend of mine, Jay Rodriguez, who is a Grammy Award uh, winning saxophonist and jazz composer. Um, oh, I just wonderful. know him as, as, as my neighbor and mm-hmm. I think but he's he's well known he's revered in the musical world and I want to chat with him about what his work means to him I and love then the variety point, that you're bringing to the program <laughs> and at some point we'll find Carol Prendergast again by the way you can find if you want to connect with Carol you can find her on LinkedIn um, at Carol Prendergast JD all right goodbye everyone yeah, you have to Take have care. the JD there because there's too many Carol Prendergast okay All right. But I'd love to hear from people. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.